This is an ABC podcast. Residents of Mount Isa in Queensland say they've seen an increase of hundreds of people living rough since the Northern Territory's alcohol bans. They shouldn't be doing that in my part of the country. This is my country. Especially, you know, they just come here and party anywhere. They got no shame no more. Coming over here to um, Queensland. And a year on, the residents of Black Mountain still find themselves on the wrong side of a landslide. We've even had girls flip their cars out on the road and they've no longer returned, obviously. So, yeah, there's been a few accidents. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajak Country. On Friday on Australia Wide, we heard on this show that over a 25-year period, close to half of the maternity services in rural and remote Australia were removed. The National Rural Health Commissioner, Dr Ruth Stewart, told the programme that right now the health system was failing rural women in Australia. Today, we're following on from this story and we're going to head to Townsville. In 2021, the Townsville Hospital commissioned an independent review in response to growing concerns its maternal fetal medicine unit could not meet a pickup in demand. The ABC has obtained a copy of the results of this review, which found the unit was both understaffed and under-resourced. Jade Toomey put together this story. Kelly is eagerly awaiting the birth of her first baby due in April. She lives in Moranbar in central Queensland with her partner. We've changed her name to keep her medical information private. In late January, when she was about six months pregnant, Kelly was diagnosed with foetal growth restriction, which is when the baby is much smaller than expected. Her doctor referred her for growth scans at a clinic in Townsville called the Maternal Fetal Medicine Specialist Unit. It deals with the highest risk and most complicated pregnancies, and it's the only public facility of its kind outside Queensland's southeast corner. Three weeks passed and Kelly hadn't heard a word about her request for an appointment, so she contacted the hospital. And still, she heard nothing. So with time ticking and as her high-risk pregnancy continued, she wrote a scathing complaint to the hospital earlier this month, which has been leaked to the ABC. We've obtained Kelly's permission to publish parts of it. I am concerned that further delaying my treatment could be detrimental to the health of my child. The health system's failing me and my unborn child. Am I just another woman in the healthcare system with an unborn child that will go unnoticed? The Townsville Hospital and Health Service says Kelly's complaint has been successfully resolved, but she's not alone. The ABC has also seen internal correspondence between the Townsville Hospital and the director of its high-risk maternity unit, Dr David Watson, which revealed the extent of the patient backlog there. Here's a voice actor playing the words of Dr David Watson. We have 54 referrals to be triaged and seen in the next few weeks. There were in excess of 15 referrals needing more urgent assessment. This occurs multiple times every week in Townsville. We don't have the capability to meet the maternal fetal medicine demand for North, Western and Central Queensland. Dr Watson said he's been identifying these issues multiple times over the past decade and concerns like his prompted the Townsville Hospital and Health Service to commission a review of its high-risk maternity unit back in 2021. 
It's also been leaked to the ABC and it paints a picture of an understaffed and under-resourced workforce centred around just two specialists that can't meet current or future maternity health care needs. We've used another voice actor to represent the review author, Dr Glenn Gardner, who's a specialist in maternal fetal medicine. The number of pregnancies serviced per MFM specialist is almost double that of their southeast Queensland counterparts. The Townsville specialists service more births than any other unit in Australia or New Zealand, which have some of the highest rates of perinatal morbidity and mortality in the country. This has led to documented delays in the care of high-risk pregnant women. Increased waiting times for women have attendant risks of adverse pregnancy outcomes and potential medico-legal consequences. Regional Queensland has long been grappling with a worsening maternity health crisis and gaps in vital obstetrics positions. The Gladstone and Billawila hospitals have been on birthing bypass for months, while birthing services haven't been provided at Weeper Hospital since the 1990s and at the Cooktown facility since February last year. The National Association of Specialist Obstetricians and Gynaecologists is calling for federal intervention in Queensland's maternity health system. Here's the association's president, Dr Gino Pecorero. We've seen that the state government's response in Gladstone was simply to tell women to drive down to Rockhampton um, and that was a very short-sighted solution. What that resulted in was increasing pressure on the doctors working at Rockhampton and I was told that a number of doctors there simply Um, had had enough and had left that service creating their own problems. He says the backlog at Townsville's high-risk unit is a symptom of a system in distress. If the demands are so great, um, almost certainly there will be women who need this highly expert quaternary service that aren't getting access to it in a timely manner. And that can have very real um, negative impacts on their health and the health of their pregnancies. Dr Gardner's review made 11 recommendations, including investing in more staff urgently to allow the maternity unit to operate five days a week and a purpose-designed clinic. The Townsville Hospital and Health Service Chief Executive Kieran Keyes said no specific incident triggered the review, but the hospital was considering the review's recommendations. Jade Toomey reporting there from Tansville. You're listening to Australia Wide on ABC Radio. And you're with me, Sinead Mangan. Now to a remarkable story out of Coffs Harbour. A Coffs Harbour woman has become the first person in Australia to receive a uterus transplant. 30-year-old Kirsty Bryant underwent the landmark surgery in January after a uterus donation from her very own mother. It's an amazing story of medical advancement. Madeline Cross spoke to Ms Bryant about her journey. So a uterus transplant is in the realm of other organ um, transplants. So my mum was my organ donor and she donated her uterus to me. I wanted a uterus transplant because after the birth of my first daughter, Violet, I had to have a life-saving hysterectomy. So after my hysterectomy, I obviously um, was unable to carry another pregnancy. So I did keep my ovaries, which allowed me to make embryos. So I had my eggs and I could make embryos, but I couldn't carry a pregnancy. So um, six months postpartum, 
I started looking around at my options and I found the clinical trial with the Royal Women's Hospital. So I um, sought out a referral from my GP and my mum and I um, have been on the journey since I was six months postpartum. So um, yeah, close to a year and a bit. Miss Bryant's mother, 53-year-old Michelle Hayton, says it was an easy decision to be her daughter's donor. So she called me and she said to me, hey mum, hypothetically if you could have a hysterectomy and I could have your uterus, would that be something you could do? And I said to her, wow, is this a thing? And she said, yes mum, there's a trial happening in um, Sydney. And I said, well, if we don't have to go overseas, yep, that's fine. I'm happy to, you know, to investigate and um, see what sort of options we have. I didn't hesitate. I, um, I straight away said, yep, that's not a problem. We've always been really close. Um, Kirsty's not just my daughter. She's my best friend and I love her so much. You know, a lot of people go through their life thinking they can't carry a baby. Now this gives them options and, um, yeah, no, so, so happy. Miss Bryant says her and her mum have become even closer following this journey. My mum, I knew she was incredibly brave and selfless, but this has just shown the rest of the world and Australia how brave and selfless she really is. And so far, her recovery is going well. I very, very luckily got my um, period 32 days post-op where they were sort of, we were expecting anywhere between four weeks and three months. We were hoping for a period, but my uterus started talking to the hormones in my body and it started working, like I said, 32 days post-op. So that's incredible. And that's obviously the first step to being able to start planning for an embryo transfer. We are hoping sort of middle of this year or going well to um, start trying for an embryo transfer. Miss Bryant says she's proud to be the first person in Australia to receive a uterus transplant. I never thought I would be the first. When I put my hand up, I just wanted to be a part of the clinical trial. But I feel incredibly lucky that um, not only did I get accepted into the trial, but mum and I have now been the first. The team looked after us so incredibly well. And especially after my traumatic birth, I was you know, obviously reluctant to go through more treatment, but this has been so far a very um, easy journey. And I'm, yeah, just incredibly grateful that in Australia we are moving towards this sort of research and hopefully giving other women options for uterine factor infertility. I mean, there are options for women currently, you know, adoption, fostering, surrogacy, but that is a long and expensive process and it's nice to know that this could become a possibility, uh, um, a treatment possibility for other women because obviously, you know, some, some women are born without a working uterus, some women have to have hysterectomies due to cancer treatment, hysterectomies due to postpartum hemorrhage like myself. So it's just incredible that at the Royal Women's Hospital they're doing this sort of um, clinical trial and research into fertility options. Quite an extraordinary story. Madeline Cross was chatting there to 30-year-old Kirsty Bryant. This is ABC Australia Wide. 
Residents in a small hinterland town west of Noosa say a major landslide caused by flooding rains that hit southeast Queensland last February is still causing major access issues. It's the region's largest landslide in 30 years and repairs are yet to start. Frustrating residents who say the year-long wait is costing them thousands of dollars and access to essential medical assistance. Meg Bolton has this story. The small hinterland town of Black Mountain was once a 20-minute drive west of Noosa, but these days it can take more than an hour because of a 150-metre-long, 15-metre-deep landslide that's destroyed the main access. Phil Broad is one of about 150 residents cut off by the landslide. He has quadriplegia and requires hours of medical assistance twice a day, but finding people to provide that care is difficult. I've had three carers had to resign. Uh, a lot of them are student nurses, haven't got much money, and they come out all this way and it's costing a lot of money um, for the maintenance yeah. on their cars. Carers and residents say the only remaining access, a steep, bumpy dirt detour, is ruining their vehicles. Carer Laura Franklin has been helping Phil for the past six months and her dedication is costing her. My car has been absolutely destroyed by this road. The cost of alignments, the constant alignments that's needed, the extra servicing, the wear and tear on the tyres, three monthly changing tyres. Cars already cost enough and to have all this extras that we need to now be fixing it's really difficult and has affected how many cares we get up. We've even had girls flip their cars out on the road and they've no longer returned obviously so yeah there's been a few accidents. She says there's only a few carers left willing to make the journey. It's really worrying. We've got to worry about Phil and his health. Like, obviously, he's very, very vulnerable and requires assistance every day. And if we can't get up here, we don't know what's going to happen to him and what turns in health he can take. We now require another agency to help fill the shifts because we struggle to get people to come up here, not due to, like, staff shortages. It's due to the conditions of the road. No-one's willing to come up anymore. Resident Tina Sturgeon once felt like she had the best of both worlds, caring for her camels, donkeys and peacocks on her small rural property. Now she feels isolated. My life has changed immensely. We purchased a property just outside of town on a bitumen road. That's why we purchased here, is because we have a bitumen road to town and it's only 10 minutes. We now feel like we're living in the middle of nowhere because we've got to rattle across a dirt road down a very steep mountain and travel to town. It's a long trek. It's very wearing and it takes a lot of time out of your day, especially if you've got to go to work or drop kids off or something. It's, it's half a day just to get where you're wanting to go and back again. When the landslip first happened, the Noosa Council estimated repairs would take only six months. But Director of Infrastructure Services, Larry Sengstock, says once geotechnical engineers started surveying the site, they realised it isn't an easy fix. And it's actually a really deep slide, so there's the whole half of the mountain, essentially, or well, that section of the mountain is twisting. And that makes it very difficult from an engineering point of view to fix, and it's just going to take us longer. And that's, unfortunately, that's just the, the case. We can't change that. We just have to do it we can. Now the council hope to reopen the road next year. And it relies on weather, it relies on a whole lot of things um, and availability of construction materials because you know we weren't the only ones affected in this whole region so the availability of workers and, and construction crews to do that work and the equipment um, and, the, and the resources is um, 
is very difficult. So, you know, we're, we're, we're doing the final planning now, then we go to tender, then it's up to them to, to bring forward the schedule. He says the council has employed extra staff, including a support officer, to help residents while it works as quickly as possible to find a solution. Well, it's the biggest one we've had in 30 years in this in this region. So, yeah, and it is a difficult one. It's not just straightforward. You know, it's taken out the road, but again, it's, it's everything underneath that you don't see. And it's got natural springs. It's got a lot of water that's just been running through there. So really understanding what all that is before we fix it. Because the last thing we want to do is fix it and then have to come back and do it again. It's, it's amazing, it's only about 100 metres long, the road itself, but you know, it's gonna cost anywhere $25 million plus in construction. But one year on from the landslide, construction work is yet to start on the road. Tina Sturgeon says that's causing residents anxiety. Stuck is a very good word. We just feel lost and um, deserted, basically. Like they've offered us no real compensation for so many people up here are having mental issues. There's a lot of elderly people up here. They, a lot of them are scared to drive that road. I am scared to drive that. I won't drive that road at night unless it's an emergency. And even then it'd have to be pretty serious. I know council's doing what they can do, but 12 months, another 12 months is a long wait for everyone. 100 metres of road, that's Phil Broad, a Black Mountain resident, finishing that story from Meg Bolton. We're going to head to Queensland now, where three mayors are calling on the state government to introduce a Northern Territory-style banned drinking register across North Queensland. They believe it will address rising rates of alcohol fueled violence and antisocial behaviours across the region. Julia Andre has this story from Mount Isa. They're everywhere now, territory more. See, I'm in full Kalkadoon. They shouldn't be doing that here in my part of the country. This is my country. Especially, you know, they just come here and party anywhere. They got no shame no more. Coming over here to um, Queensland. That's Kalkadoon man Geoffrey Doyle. He walks along the Leichhardt River, which snakes through the middle of Mount Isa each morning. He's getting fed up with the drained cask wine bladders and emptied bourbon bottles he finds littering his country. Yeah, I am getting mad. Coming here and making, you know, mess and everything and fighting and everything. All out of the morning, you see them all walking and still drunk when you come up town, when I come up town shopping and everything. The outback mining city has always had an itinerant population. But Mount Isa's leaders and social services say the reinstatement of alcohol bans in the Northern Territory is causing numbers of people living rough in the city to swell. We definitely have seen an increase in uh, service delivery. Ragos actually, so they run the shed, so the, there's a shed down there that um, people can come and access, and, but you have to be sober to be in that shed. So they actually serviced up to 500 people in a week uh, at one point in the last month or so. That's Will Blackley. He's the acting CEO of the Northwest Indigenous Catholic Social Service. It aids people living rough in Mount Isa, but he says the service is at capacity. Sad and, and lonely. Like we lost our family. That's why we just keep on drinking. NT resident Nolan Holmes has been in Mount Isa since December. He first ventured across the border to visit family. Mount Isa is not resourced in any way or shape to um, help these people that are coming into our community to access alcohol. Um, they're a burden on the police, they're a burden on health, um, ambulance. That's Mount Isa's Mayor, Daniel Slade. 
the influx of people is putting pressure on social services, which are already in high demand. And we're dealing with people with chronic addictions. So, um, of course, they're going somewhere else where they can get access to alcohol. And, and in Queensland, um, we don't have the alcohol restrictions that the Northern Territory have. Many local residents have told the ABC they're struggling to access the services they need. Mount Isa, Townsville and Cairns mayors want the state government to implement a banned drinkers register across North Queensland to curb alcohol fueled violence and other challenges. It would identify people who've been banned from purchasing takeaway alcohol by court order and block their purchase. It's been used in the NT for years but the Queensland Premier says she needs more details. Going home after a hard day on a construction site or, you know, building a house, whatever, find his, um, find his ID to get a six-pack or, or to get a bottle of wine to take home to, to his wife. I mean, the mayors, it's their idea. They have to explain it to the community. Leaders say the register is just one part of solving the issue of antisocial behaviour. Better housing and sufficient legal sentencing were also flagged as areas that need immediate improvement. Julia Andre reporting there from Mount Isa in Queensland. Let's head to WA South where four years ago rising rock star Amelia Murray was at a fork in the road. The band she was playing bass for, Spacey Jane, were getting noticed. The only thing was Amelia was keen to pursue a career in medicine. As it turned out, Spacey Jane this year had six songs in the Triple J's Hottest 100 countdown. Our reporter, Brianna Fiore, spoke to Amelia on why she left the glam world of rock and whether she has any regrets. I was in Spacey Jane for three years, the first three years, and I played bass. I had finished my undergrad and was going into the post-grad that I made the decision to leave the band. Yeah, writing and recording with your friends is just like the coolest thing ever, but I think there were other aspects of being a musician as a career that didn't really suit me as well, so um, I found touring really hard and the late nights and I don't drink and the party scene's not really where I feel most comfortable so I guess there are some behind the scenes stuff about being a musician that people don't really always see is quite hard so that was kind of a contributing factor as to why I ended up picking medicine over music. very proud of how far Booster Seat has gone and is continuing to go and I really like that song as well because all five of us are on the song so Pepper who's the bass player now she sings the vocals on it and I play the bass so it's kind of one of the few songs that has all five of us on it. Great. I really like working in the ED because it is so varied. Um, you know, you can be seeing someone with a broken bone, you can be seeing someone with, um, you know, some sort of organ problem, with an infection, could come in with some after a trauma, like a car crash. So it's really varied and I think that keeps you on your toes and you also learn a lot because you're being pushed to learn widely and broadly and I think that's really awesome especially at my level of training where I'm still trying to learn a lot. 
the shifts are long, like the 10 hour shifts, but the Albany ED has got such a good culture, um, one of learning and support. I feel very supported by all of the seniors in ED. I feel very lucky to have found something like sexual health that I'm so passionate about because it definitely makes going to work a lot easier and a lot more fun when you actually really care about it and um, yeah I know not everyone gets the luxury of being able to have that so I feel very fortunate. I feel like I had my I had my go at music and um, had a really good time doing it but I think that ran its course for me and so then I don't look back at it and be like, oh, I wish I was doing that because I did do that. And I actually don't feel FOMO. I'm just happy for them. And it's just all very, it's, it was hard initially and sad, um, but there's never been any resentment. It's, yeah, I'm just, I'm really happy that they're doing what they're wanting to do and they're really successful and I'm, I'm really happy for them. Amelia Murray speaking there to our reporter Brianna Fiore from Albany in WA. And that's all from Australia Wide for this Monday. My colleague Adam Stephen in Cairns is going to take the reins for a few days while Alex and I do a bit of training. And I'll speak to you after that. I hope you have a lovely evening. Cheerio. This is an ABC podcast.